When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Maybe it's just that you don't know how to use social courtesy. Oh, that's old-fashioned. Watch how Lizzie Post and Dan Post act as host and hostess. They know that courtesy means showing respect, thinking of the other person, real friendliness. Hello! Welcome to Awesome Etiquette. Where we explore modern etiquette through the lens of consideration, respect, and honesty. Our show today is awesome because we're going to talk about church conundrums, political conversations, and delicate baby observations, as well as delve into dining etiquette with a reading from the 1922 edition of Etiquette. That's all coming up. Awesome Etiquette comes to you from the studios of Vermont Public Radio and is proud to be part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. I'm Lizzie Post. And I'm Dan Post-Senning, and we're from the Emily Post Institute. We did something fun yesterday. We sure did. We sure did. We got to come to our wonderful VPR studios, Vermont Public Radio Studios, and actually do a awesome etiquette workshop. I know. It was like our different Emily Post worlds crossing and colliding. Exactly. It was a lot of fun. But we came in and we did sort of a little seminar. We did kind of one of our, our talks for about 45 minutes. Dan gave our spiel and talked about how we use a five-step method to solve relationship problems. And then we broke out into groups and actually worked through the five-step method to solve some of the problems that folks here have been experiencing because they've just switched to a new layout. They're now a very open office, whereas before they actually had closed offices. And that really does change the dynamic in an office environment or in any venue, really. It it really does. I think it's been a bigger change for this organization than some people here anticipated or, or thought. I definitely found as I was driving home, I was reflecting on those. It was our world's crossing, but it was also the VPR world's colliding in that Awesome Etiquette is a familiar podcast and brand around the VPR studios. Yes. But as people who've listened to this show know, VPR is really growing up right now. It's it, They're moving into new spaces and their offices are changing. And and there was sort of a, a ripe moment for us to both share some of what we do from the perspective of just sharing content that's produced here, but also maybe doing it at a moment when it would be an advantage for the organization as they're learning how to use this new space. And I thought it was so interesting to hear people's reactions to the problems that they're facing and how they think thought they might be able to handle them in the future. And it was interesting to hear people wanting wanting guidelines, wanting things that would help them navigate this new space. Because when there's nothing, you know, people talk all the time, oh, etiquette's old and stuffy and it doesn't mean anything. Or, oh, no, 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 we should just have no rules. It should be, everyone should just be able to manage themselves. Now, I'm a big proponent of let people be, but I also think you do need some standards, some things that you as a company culture are going to adhere to and expect from each other because it can facilitate the dialogue. We talk all the time about our sample scripts. Well, when you're not sure which sample script you should be using, it's going to be really hard to solve that dilemma. But 
if your organization has told you, hey, in these types of circumstances, it's really okay to speak up. Or, you know what, if this is going on, it's best to take care of yourself or remove yourself from the situation. People are then going to know what to do and where to go. And whether it's noise level in an open office environment or how you take care of a new shared kitchen space, it can really be reassuring to have those common standards and and allow for a little more personal freedom. It can allow you to make better choices about how you're going to follow those rules and and how you're going to get along with the people that you work with every day. Well, we got to help folks here at VPR yesterday. Shall we help some of our listeners out now? Let's do it. Perhaps you can help me with a problem. I'd like your advice, Jim. My advice? Yes, I've got quite a serious problem. On each and every episode of Awesome Etiquette, we take your questions on how to behave. If you have a question for us, you can email it to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or give us a call at 802-866-0860. Our first question is a church conundrum. Dear Lizzie and Dan, my mother, father, and brother are all dedicated churchgoers. My husband and I are not. The problem is when we visit. On Saturday evening, my mother starts mentioning church and laying on the guilt. My dad then starts saying things like, you should just go. You know it would make your mom so happy. I agree that it would make her happy, but it makes my husband uncomfortable, and both of us feel like we are pretending to be something we are not. Should I just suck it up and go, or should I stick to my beliefs, which I think should be respected as well? Thank you so much, Church Conundrum. Church Conundrum, thank you for your question. This is a very personal question. I appreciate your willingness to ask it. Um, I feel like a lot of families deal with this also, you know? It's not an uncommon question at all, and it's a very personal choice. There isn't a a particular etiquette rule that's going to help you decide whether or not you should go or not, but there are definitely some things to think about in terms of how you handle whatever decision you're going to make. I've seen people handle this two different ways. My father was not a churchgoer. My mom grew up being a churchgoer. And especially when we would go visit my mom's parents, who went very regularly, it it was one of those things. My dad always stayed home and we all went to church together. And that was fine. That worked for our family. You know, my mom didn't want to force my dad to be in a place that he didn't want to be. And my grandparents understood. So that that was really nice. There wasn't the laying on of guilt that was happening. At the same time, I have also met a lot of people who are non-believers or believe something different. And when they attend a service with their husband or their wife or their parents, what they try to do is to find universal themes. So try not to listen so much for the very identifiable qualities of that religion that you might not believe in. Most services that you go to will have a lot of aspects of love and support and family in them. And going and looking for those messages that are being delivered, I find that to be a really positive way of making this something that doesn't hurt your values, but instead gives you food for thought. You can always go and listen and just say, I'm going to experience someone else's culture for the next hour. I mean, it's an hour of your life. And if you if that's not something you're okay, if that's not something you're comfortable with, I think then what you have to do is put up your boundaries and put up your your personal guard for blocking that guilt and just saying, this is my mom speaking right now. And I understand where she's coming from. It doesn't make me comfortable, but 
you know, you can let her know it doesn't make you comfortable. You're certainly able to stand up for yourself and say that. But I do think that figure out where you come down on what's going to be um, more tolerable for you. What's going to be something that will make you feel okay with your day, okay with your visit with your folks? It really is a personal choice in the end, like Lizzie says. And if your faith convictions make it difficult for you to enjoy a service or even appreciate a service in that way, that that really is a choice that's valid also. And we definitely want to support you in your decision to make whatever choices you feel are important about your own faith. You might be ready to have a conversation that's a little more serious conversation with your mother. And I'm thinking particularly about the presence of her grandchildren, your children in this equation. Oftentimes that can be a a locus of conflict. Maybe a grandparent has a certain idea about the way a grandchild might be raised that might be different than the parents. And if if that's going to be a point of conflict, it might be a time to really talk to your mother about the way you and your husband feel and how you would appreciate approaching discussions about faith around your children. And you have options. It doesn't have to be, Mom, you're not allowed to talk to them about this. Or, you know, we all have to pretend what Grandma believes is what we believe. And you don't have to do that. You could talk to your kids, maybe especially as they're older, and say, you know, Grandma really believes in this, and it's a great place to learn from her why she believes in it, what it's like to have belief and faith in something. So you can encourage your kids, as I said, especially when they're older and can really understand and wrap their heads around some of this, to be curious about it and to not take it too personally, to not feel too much guilt or confliction, but instead get curious. There are so many opportunities for really rich discussions and opportunities to talk about what elements of a faith you connect with and what elements of a faith you don't connect with. I think those are some of my favorite parts about Uh, religious experiences are the conversations that I find myself having afterwards (laughs) with both people who believe and agree in those faiths and those traditions and people that don't. So for Church Conundrum, whichever way you choose, whether you choose to, to go to church with your family and absorb it in a different way or whether you choose to stay home, I think it's important that you do have this conversation with your mother. If you decide to stay home, I think you need to come from a place of saying, Mom, I really respect and appreciate the beliefs that you have and that you taught me growing up. And they've instilled a lot of good values in me. For my own sake, I've chosen not to follow them for certain reasons. And I'm going to stay home. But I'm really happy that you're going to go and you're going to enjoy the service and and your your Sunday or your day of worship is going to be one you feel really confident and good about. Or you can simply say you're going to go, and I'm sure she'll be thrilled with that. I'm sure she would be ecstatic if she were to hear that. This is definitely a a tier two conversation, a conversation that is potentially difficult. So you definitely want to approach it with some care. But um, it's a conversation many people have navigated with success many, many times, and you should take heart from that. Thank you so much for sharing your question with all of us. It's given us a lot to think about. Awesome etiquette gets support from StoryWorth. There are some stories about your mom's life that you truly never get tired of hearing. From hilarious to heartfelt, tear-jerking to plot-twisting, mom's retelling of the events always brings a bit of joy. Just in time for Mother's Day, we here at Awesome Etiquette found the perfect gift that can capture all of your mom's stories for your family forever. It's called StoryWorth. StoryWorth helps you preserve precious memories and stories from your mom or a mother figure in your life for years to come. Here's how it works. 
Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question that you get to help pick. What was your first job? Who was your first crush? <laughs> StoryWorth makes the writing process a breeze. All your loved one needs to do is to respond to the email prompt with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. I did this with my mom and it was really, really rewarding. You'll be emailed a copy of your loved one's responses as they're submitted over the course of the year. You'll get to enjoy their retelling of the stories, some you probably already know, or maybe the ones that you're surprised by you haven't heard before. <laughs> After that year of fun discovery and reminiscing, StoryWorth compiles your loved one's stories and photos into a beautiful keepsake hardcover book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift that you all will cherish for years. Story Worth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash manners. That's storyworth, S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash manners. It's manners with an S to save $10 on your first purchase. And now back to our show. Our next question is titled, Taking a Stand. Hi, Lizzie and Daniel. When I meet a new person at work, I stand and shake their hand. When they are saying goodbye, am I supposed to stand and shake their hand again? Sometimes I do stand, and other times I remain seated and say something like, nice to have met you. Have a safe trip home. Also, do you shake hands with someone after you already know them? For instance, there is a woman from an outside organization that I usually see two times a year. Should I stand and shake her hand when she comes into my office? Stand but don't shake? Don't stand and just stay seated and say hi. No matter what I do, I always end up wondering if I should have done the opposite. Are there guidelines for handshakes when saying goodbye to someone in a professional setting? And does my gender, I am female, matter at all when it comes to observing those guidelines? Thank you, Andrea. Starting us off, just to clear this one, is that for when it comes to gender, it doesn't matter. Typically, the sign of respect is to stand. And I think when someone who is a client or a guest to your office, not someone who works in your office every day, not someone that you see, maybe you're in an office that has a lot of floors and a lot of people. If it's someone who I see every day and interact with all the time, no, I'm not going to stand. Dan, I don't stand when you walk into my office. I, know, I, was I don't just stand when it. you leave my office. But when one of the guys from the offices next door comes in to ask something, mm -hmm. I often stand up and greet them and I'll stand up when they leave. Or when we have a client or a special visitor, always stand and always stand to greet them and stand when they leave. So my vote is keep the standing going. And I think the third question he was asking about was the handshake when you've already known someone. I think when you haven't seen that person in a while, handshake is perfectly fine. And if you're a hugger, you guys can hug. This happens at a lot of the social places I participate in, whether it's a pickup soccer league or it's the golf course. Often, I was thinking about it with a family. Yeah. It happens within families. Yeah, no, it does. And there you might be more likely to get a hug. But mm -hmm. but I do think that often I'm, I'm finding as, as golf season started up and I'm running into people at the club again, I'm getting 
giving hugs or handshakes again. And it's just a greeting. It's a sign of welcome. It's a wonderful way to let someone know that you're happy to see them. I so want to support you in that sentiment. (laughs) There really are no rules. Once the relationship has been established, we do live in an increasingly casual and informal world. So really, in a lot of ways, they're just opportunities at this point that the handshake is an opportunity for some physical contact that is pretty safe and it works in so many situations. But um, it's also not just a safe gesture. A handshake can be a personal warm gesture, a greeting. I I was I mentioned family when Lizzie was putting her list together because it's not a place you usually think about using a handshake. But I was at a big family gathering over Memorial Day weekend and I found myself meeting a lot of aunts and uncles and even father-in-law who I see all the time were greeting and parting in event after event after event. And sometimes I just make eye contact and I do a really warm handshake as a goodbye. I've hugged this person maybe three times already this weekend. (laughs) And in some ways, it's nice to de-escalate the seriousness of that that (laughs) moment with a little less formal than the hug handshake. So it can be used in so many ways. That's really interesting what you just said, that the handshake would be less formal. And I think the hug is less formal. I think the handshake's more formal, but the hug is more intimate. I think that's probably a a better parsing. Oh, okay, okay. Because I was like, whoa, wait a second. This is really interesting. Dan and I have a different perspective on this. No, I think it's the same perspective. You just said it a little better than I did. It's another tool in your toolbox. Andrea, we really hope that that gives you some options and some context for different places when you might use a different type of uh, goodbye with the person that you're dealing with. Best of luck to you. This next question is about positive spin. Hello, Lizzie and Daniel. My friend Anna has recently left her job at a prominent local nonprofit. She left after having repeated bad experiences with management. Anna still respects the work of this organization and has very positive working relationships with many of the team members because of the prominence of the nonprofit in the community and her transition to a new position with a new company. She continues to get questions about the organization and specifically the CEO, who made some very poor choices and did not treat Anna like a valued employee. Both for brevity's sake and out of her respect for the organization itself, she needs something positive but honest to say when asked about her former employer. What kind of sample language would you suggest when you've worked with someone and had negative experiences? Is there a way to neither endorse their choices nor throw them under the bus? It seems like you can't dodge a direct question, but she doesn't want to lie. For example, Mr. CEO is a great guy. Or overshare and indict, here's everything Mr. Terrible CEO did while I was working there. Thank you, peeved but working to be polite. Um, Well, peeved but polite, thank you for your question. And I want to start off by saying that I appreciate the sense and sentiment of this question and that you're you're wanting to think about how to not gripe about a place that you used to work, not complain or gossip in a negative way about a former boss, and at the same time, how to be honest. I think that's that's a really good etiquette question because you're striking a balance between respect, respect for others, and also respect for yourself and your own integrity. I'm going to take a little shot at some sample scripts. Lizzie is our good. our sample Yay. scripts maven. But <laughs> no, I, these, I think you're going to do great. I appreciate that. So here we go. And maybe our audience can tell us how they think that I manage this one. <laughs> oh, you know you're going to be great at this. Go I, I was on. thinking about a three-tiered approach because okay. you know me. I'm always systematic like in terms of how tiers. I approach I, these I know things. That. <laughs> I was thinking for quick getaways. You really want to keep it short and you want to keep the focus on the work. So you can always have an answer that's something like, I loved working there. 
or I loved what I did there, or I love what they do there. I'm so proud of the work I got to do there. I'm so proud of the mission of that organization. I'm so committed to the mission of that organization. I was so committed. Just really keep the focus on the work that you did and the work that they do as a group. For slightly deeper dives, if you want to acknowledge some of your ambivalence, that you liked the work that they did, but you didn't always find it easy to work there. And this is if you have an opportunity to talk a little more, if you're not just looking to give a quick answer to move on or get out of the conversation or redirect. You know, I love the work I did there, but as is often the case, I found working there really challenging. Or I loved working there, but like any job, it really was work in the end with all that can entail. That way you're acknowledging that there were problems within the organization, that you didn't love everything about it, but you're not digging into the specifics. You're not talking about a particular individual that you found difficult. Mm -hmm. If it's a closer friend and you really want to open the door to talking about the particulars of your experience working in that organization, you might even follow with something like, there were some strong personalities that I didn't always see eye to eye with. If they're curious, if they want to know more about that, that would give you a chance to talk about it. And you've also contexted the whole discussion with an understanding that these kinds of things happen in the workplace, that people don't always get along with bosses, that organizations that do nonprofit work oftentimes struggle with trying to do a lot with small budgets and small staffs, and they have huge missions. And that can often be a real challenge when you're working in the nonprofit field. And all those things can contribute to tough, high-stress work environments. I think it's important to have that understanding as part of your talking about the difficulties that you might have experienced there. The acknowledgement of the environment contributing to the factors, not necessarily one particular individual that you're going to divulge disparaging information about. Exactly. Or or even if you are going to talk about a particular individual that you understand that the totality of the situation and that can really help people take that criticism or that critique well and and context it themselves. Yeah. I also, first of all, way to go, Dan, on the sample scripts. I mean, that was awesome. (laughs) These are all great. And I love I love the idea, too, that you can say things like, there were some strong personalities we didn't always see. You guarantee someone's going to say, oh, who was it? Who was it? Is it because my friend told me about that guy? And you just say, you know, I don't want to get into who because someone else might have a great working experience with them. And you can acknowledge things like that. You can just say, I don't want to get into who. But I'm really happy where I am now. And I took so much with me from that experience. I think you're going to have lots of wonderful things to tell Anna to say, and I wish her well at the new job, and hopefully these conversations can be light and help things to move forward. But there's more. What's that? More questions coming up, but first, a word from our sponsor. Here, let's try another trick. This question is titled, Curious Minds Want to Know. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. I have two different friends who have babies that have a small, bumpy red growth on their faces. One friend's son has it on his nose, and the other friend's daughter has it on her forehead. With the little boy who has it on his nose, I have seen him in person many times, but haven't asked his parents about it because I don't know how. With my friend's daughter, I have only seen photos of her on Facebook, and I wasn't sure if it's something I can ask about when not face-to-face. We talk all the time, and our conversation topics touch on other intense baby stuff like colic and breastfeeding, but they don't talk about the red thing on their kid's face. I'm concerned and curious about their children, but since they haven't brought it up on their own, I figured they did not want to talk about it. Do you have any suggestions in how to ask about it, if at all? I don't want to make anyone uncomfortable, but not talking about it is making me uncomfortable. 
I also feel like not asking about it would make them think I don't care. Thanks, Dev. I do want to start this question by saying Dan and I are not doctors, so we are not trying to diagnose what you have talked about. But it sounds to me like these are uh, strawberry hemangiomas. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. But these are very common red bumps that can appear at birth. And what they actually are 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 tufts of extra blood vessels. Um, It can be as small as a freckle or it can be as big as a coaster. They definitely can be noticeable. And I think what our listener is experiencing is something that's noticeable, but the parents aren't saying it. And so do you say something and you're curious about it? Don't say something to the parents. Let them be the ones to tell you. This is really cut and dry etiquette here. They're kind of there isn't too much to mince around it. But it's important to let them be the the parents be the one to tell you about anything. And if you have questions, ask your doctor. Ask a friend who has a baby. Google it. We live in the age of Google. Google it. There are tons of things that you can do. But chances are, if your friends aren't actually telling you, oh, my baby has a very serious condition, then everything really is going to be fine and it's not something that they need to worry about. It's not something you need to worry about. They are, of course, I am guessing, taking excellent care of their children. So I think it's something that you can just say, you know what, this is the way it is and I can find out other ways. But asking the parents directly, I think, is it could make them uncomfortable. I think it's definitely going to make you uncomfortable. I I couldn't agree more. You're you're not going to appear rude by not asking. In your question, you acknowledge that with these parents, you sometimes talk about intense baby stuff. And if that's the case, they may have already opened the door for you to have this kind of discussion with them. And and if that's the case, it's absolutely appropriate for you to ask a question that's been on your mind or that seems like an obvious question. I could see doing this like for me, I, my cousin Pete, our cousin Pete, you know, he has a son. And if something like this had happened, I think I would feel very comfortable asking him about it because we're very close. He trusts and knows who I am and what my intention is. And I could say something like, Pete, I'm just so curious, you know, what is this little strawberry mole on his neck or on his cheek? I was just wondering if you could explain that to me or something like that. Keeping it simple but very clear. I could see, like you're saying, someone you have that close relationship with being understanding and and being open to that conversation. Particularly if they've already opened the door to talking about health issues in particular with their child. Yeah, they know that you're coming from a good place. They know your intention. They know your personality so often that you can trust in that to carry you through the awkwardness. But generally speaking, you don't want to ask unless the parent brings it up themselves. Dev, thank you for your question, and we hope this helps. Our next question is about keeping it political. 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 I like political. (laughs) I have a very good friend who disagrees with me on political matters. As you know, this election is very interesting. Every time the election is brought up, my friend trashes the person from my party, even though I never say anything bad about her person from her party. I am scared that the next time I will blow up. How do I keep the peace? Best wishes to you keeping it political. Oh, political. Tis the season. (laughs) My my list of advice goes like this. Don't blow up. <laughs> Breathe. It's going to be a long year. I want to tell you that I really sympathize. 
We've just been getting our first interview request at the Emily Post Institute for us to talk about how to have political conversations. And we talked about how to have political conversations in the postscript of episode 59. So when you're thinking about having a discussion about politics or even addressing a political topic, you want to be aware that you're in tier two of a conversation. Tier one is safe territory, safe for small talk. Tier two is potentially controversial because people have valid and very different opinions about these topics by definition. That's anything related to politics, religion, or dating, or your love life. So how do you approach one of these conversations and have it well? Because you have to be able to talk about this stuff or our civil society would cease functioning. And at this time in an election year, a, a particularly a presidential election year, these conversations are going to be going on and they should be going on. Absolutely should be going on. But what do you do when someone is being so rude about the conversation? I mean, our keeping it political listener is mm-hmm. already getting engaged in these. And, and this person is trashing. They're not being respectful with their conversation. They're not taking care with their friends and their feelings and their experiences. Yeah, No, this is where I, I say somewhat jokingly, don't blow up, breathe and remind yourself it's going to be a long yeah. year. But in some <laughs> ways, that really is the best advice that it's it's, this is about managing yourself and your reactions. And there's going to be content coming at you from all kinds of different sources. There's, it's going to be in social media. It's going to be on the TV. It's going to be in conversation that you hear at work. It's going to be in conversations that you hear in your home. And managing your reactions, not letting that upset or unsettle you, even when you don't like the tone or nature of that conversation, is an important part to to taking care of yourself well. It's not even really a conversation at that point. So the conversation rules don't apply. So in some ways, that, that is the best advice is manage yourself before you even really think about how to manage the conversation. There are definitely times when I, I mean, I have friends who have obviously different political views than I do. And I listening to them talk. There are times when I do exactly what Dan's talking about. I just say, you know what? I'm just going to let them spout off and I'm kind of not going to contribute a lot to this conversation. because It's not really a conversation I want to have. And I can do that. I I can do that. But I also think there are times when a friend gets to a point where you got to speak up. And I would feel confident speaking up to this friend and saying, hey, pulling out a great when you I feel when you really trash the person I'm rooting for. I don't appreciate that. I don't do that to you. And I'd appreciate the same respect in return. Talk about your guy positively all you want, but please don't talk negatively about mine in front of me. Save it for the people who want to hear it. Sorry, I got a little uh, like about it, but minus the save it for the people who want to hear it part. Just, you're taking a lot of responsibility for yourself yes, with yes, that answer. Yes. You're you're saying when you do this, this is how I feel about it. And that really lets them decide how they want to approach that topic. If they want to continue to tell you exactly how they feel every time, well, then they're also equipped with the knowledge that that affects the way you feel and the way you see them and the degree to which you're capable of hearing what they have to say. Yeah. Sorry. I'm just thinking about that person. Like, think about it, though. If your friend is is choosing to do this, knowing that it upsets you, knowing that it's disrespectful to you because you've taken the moment to speak up, I think that's a friend I'm going to start wondering if during election time, during primary time, I want to be spending time with them or not. And we hear about that all the time. Oh, yes. We hear about people that make the choice not to talk to that uncle, that cousin, that sibling, even that parent quite as frequently or for as long during a heated election cycle. During election times, it's not uncommon to hear of people 
not going to Thanksgiving that year, right after the election has happened, to hear of people not getting together with those family members that are the ones that really push the buttons and get so heated into the political conversation that it's it's just not pleasant anymore. And that's OK. It's OK to take this kind of space. And don't forget that you can manage it online as well. Hide people from your feed if, if someone's getting really overly political. Take what control you can while you can because it's going to help you during the season. And it doesn't mean that you can't re-engage with the person as soon as all of this political conversation tones down a bit. I definitely also heard something in the, the very first thing that you talked about when you answered the question. And you said, you know, sometimes when I'm listening to that person, I just I acknowledge that. They're going on. This isn't a conversation. I'm just going to listen. We often talk about the price of admission for having these conversations is the willingness to cede the last word and to back out. It's almost impossible to argue with someone who won't argue back. So you just listen. That's probably the thing that's most likely to make it end the soonest. If you get to that point where you've expressed that that actually does start to affect you and impact you, that if you're having to to tolerate that all the time and it's becoming a burden, I think the when you I feel statement starts to be really powerful for letting them know that it's starting to affect the way you perceive them, even though you're not responding to them, because it is important that they know that sometimes people aren't aware (laughs) that they're coming off quite as strongly as they think they are or that other people don't share the same passion or perspective that they do. I really want to leave you with a positive thought here, because we've alluded a couple of times to the importance of these conversations, the importance of having them well. And one of my best tips for having uh, these conversations really well is that you enter them prepared to listen, that you really enter one of these conversations with the idea that um, the best chance you have of building rapport with someone isn't necessarily sharing with them a fact that's going to change their perspective or a source of information that's likely to sway them in one way or another, but to show them that someone can reasonably hold a different opinion than the opinion that they're holding and that that might start to open a bit of a bridge, a possibility that they could see a reasonable person might think differently than they do. And that's where you start to build that accord. This is one of those evergreen etiquette conundrums that we truly hope can be just a little bit easier this year. It's only common courtesy, Chuck. Thank you for your questions. You can send updates and comments to 802-866-0860. Or you can email awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or reach us on Twitter using the hashtag awesomeetiquette. time to hear your thoughts, feelings, and responses to past episodes. We love getting feedback from you, so please feel free to share anything you'd like with us. Our producer, Hans, has been looking over what you had to say, and he's got some things to share. Indeed I do. Hello, everyone. I wanted to share some feedback that we got in response to a question back in episode 86. So in that episode, we heard from a woman, and she had recently suffered a miscarriage and was feeling traumatized by that experience. So her question was about how to handle inquiries about her family planning from other people. Because this woman said that she had spent a lot of time prior to the miscarriage talking about how excited she was to have a big family. Right. Um, But after the miscarriage, she didn't feel ready to talk yet. So in response to her question, some listeners had some ideas about sample language that she could use when people ask her about this. And one note that we got was from Nicole, uh, and she was very open with her story about her own miscarriage of a daughter at 13 weeks and how devastating that was. She said, 
Miscarriage is hard because you're not only mourning someone that never was, you are mourning their entire future and all their possible futures. My miscarriage was followed by a bout of postpartum depression from which I thankfully recovered. We are very thankful about that too. And Nicole shared some sample language that helped her get through that depression when she was asked about family plans. She said that she found that, quote, being brutally and unabashedly honest about my experience has had a very sobering effect on most people and effectively shuts down any further inquiry on the topic of when our next kid will happen. It reminds them how rude it is to ask because you don't know what someone else is dealing with in private. I remember receiving this feedback and um, what Nicole had done was prepared some one-liners that worked well for her. And I think that delivered to the right people in the right situation they could work, I would not advise them for everybody. But, you know, she said for a humorous or, or snarky response, you know, you could say, well, when are you available to babysit so that we could make that happen? And you could change that to be like, you know, oh, do you want to give me a coupon for babysitting? <laughs> you know, one of the other ones in this category was, oh, were you planning on being there for the delivery or were you planning on being there for the conception? You want to help out? <laughs> I think that those, while they can be funny and they can be a way to deflect It is so going to put the other person, it almost is going to embarrass them rather than give them the reality check that Nicole talks about. And I think that it's important to recognize the difference between those two things. But I appreciate that Nicole's trying to handle a difficult situation with humor, but I think this is so super delicate. And I think what's important to remember when people do ask these really prying questions or what feel like heavily charged questions to you right now is that our original asker had spoken about how she had shared so much about wanting a big family. And I think the people around her are probably trying to keep the hope for that alive. And they're trying to encourage her to think of the future. And when you're grieving, that's a very hard thing to do. And so I would want to come at it and say, you know, appreciate the fact that they're being encouraging. But if you don't want to talk about it, be really clear about that, too. I'm sorry, I don't want to talk about that right now. But, you know, thank you for asking. I understand. And Nicole could really sense that also. She included several kinds of responses, including a neutral response that went something like, well, that's an interesting question, but I'd rather not talk about it right now. Totally clear. The exact same language (laughs) that you just used. She also included language for those that both knew about the miscarriage and those that didn't. And for those that knew about the miscarriage, she would say something like, well, you know, our world has been turned upside down and we're trying to set things right side up first. I love that one. I thought that was really the tone was just spot on. Classy. For those that don't know, she says, well, you know, we haven't ruled that possibility out, but it's really quite a personal matter. We prefer not to discuss outside our marriage or with others or outside the family. And I also thought that was sort of spot on in terms of its tone and level of discretion. I really thought that that these three selections of, of places to turn to and words to use were very, very good. And you can, Dan actually says this in our seminars a lot. He says, you know, think of the the enticing one, the one that's the biting comment, that's the, the what you really want to say if your most fierce self was out there or your most humorous self or snarky self or whatever, is to think that one, but then say one of these others. So thank you to Nicole for some sample language on how to respond.
For today's postscript, we're going to return to one of the original ideas for this segment, which was that it would be an opportunity to dive a little deeper and talk about a, a particular area of etiquette. And to that end, I thought that we would return today to Emily Post Etiquette, the 1922 edition, the original edition of Emily Post Etiquette, to look at how etiquette both changes over time and how it stays the same. And Something that I've gotten used to saying in my seminars that some of the manners that change the most slowly over time are the manners that we use when we're sitting at the dinner table, that the way my great-great-grandmother Emily Post would talk about using a knife and fork are very similar to the ways that I would talk about using a knife and fork with an audience today. So the first dining etiquette lesson that I found that was almost identical to the way that I teach dining etiquette today actually came from a chapter towards the end of the original 22 edition, and it's from a chapter that's called Kindergarten. <laughs> And it's where Emily talks about table manners basics, and it's where she breaks down how you hold a knife and a fork. As soon, therefore, as his hand is dexterous enough, the child must be taught to hold his fork, no longer gripped baby fashion in his fist, but much as a pencil is held in writing. Only the fingers are placed nearer the top than the point. The thumb and the two fingers are closed around the handle two-thirds of the way up the shank, and the food is taken up shovel-wise on the turned-up prongs. At first, his little fingers will hold his fork stiffly, but as he grows older, his fingers will become more flexible, just as they will in holding his pencil. If he finds it hard work to shovel his food, he can for a while continue to use his nursery pusher. By and by, the pusher is changed for a small piece of bread, which is held in his left hand, and between thumb and first two fingers, and against which the fork shovels up such elusive articles as corn, peas, poached eggs, etc. Now, the description of the use of the pusher I don't include when I'm talking to grown-up audiences, but when I'm talking to, to just about anybody about how to hold either a fork in your right hand or a spoon in your right hand or your dominant hand, so when you're using a fork without a knife or when you're using a spoon by itself, I'll break down the grip, but then I'll say, you know, a simpler, easier way to think about this is that you want to hold your fork the same way that you would hold a pencil or you want to hold your spoon the same way you'd hold a pencil and then keep your grip the same but turn your wrist over. And that's going to open up your grip in a way that lets you use that fork or spoon in that shoveling motion that Emily talks about, even though shovel's not the, uh, for me, the best image to give someone when thinking about sitting at the table. It is, it is uh, descriptive and hard to miss her intent. And it's literally the exact same language. In this case, I'm using literally, I think correctly, because I just read it out of a book that I would use today when I'm describing this. One other thing that I noticed was Emily's description of the style with which you approach a dinner party or tableware was one where I noticed an aesthetic trend that I see today also. And it's actually her acknowledging a change in aesthetics. And it reminded me that some things do change, but that oftentimes in that change, they're really staying the same. So this is in the chapter that's about hosting dinners and hosting dinners in your home. Emily begins... Loading a table to the utmost of its capacity with useless implements, which only in rarest instances had the least value, would seem to prove that quantity without quality must have been thought evidence of elegance and generous hospitality. And the astounding part of the bad taste epidemic was that few, if any, escaped. Even those who had inherited colonial silver and glass and china of consummate beauty sent it dust-gathering to the attic and cluttered their tables with stuffy and spurious lumber. But today, the classic has come into its own again. As though recovering from an illness, good taste is again demanding severe beauty of form and line, and banishing everything that is useless or superfluous. 
During the last 20 years, most of us have sent an army of lumpy dishes to the melting pot and junky ornaments to the ash heap, along with plush table covers, unupholstered mantle boards, and fern dishes. Today, we are going almost to the extreme of bareness and putting nothing on our tables not actually needed for use. I'm reminded of the, the restaurants that you might visit today that have a mason glass for a jar or that eschew the idea of, of giving you any utensil that you're not going to need for the meal that's being placed in front of you. And even in Emily's day, even in the 1922 edition of Etiquette, people were looking for economy and practicality in terms of how they approached the table. And while some things do change, and in this case, Emily's describing a change in aesthetics, and I'm, I'm thinking about today where there's a real change in aesthetics that is going on around the table and around how we dine and eat together. At the same time, even those changes have reflections in the past, and that pendulum of good taste continues to swing back and forth, and maybe that Baroque style will return again also, and it won't be as new when we rediscover it as we think it is. I want to thank my great-great-grandmother both for her insight on the dining experience and for her incredible writing. We appreciate it today. Let's imagine the family at dinner with nobody minding his manners. Each person busy feeding his face, showing no consideration for the others. No one can enjoy a meal like this. Every week, we like to end with a listener's salute to good etiquette, and this week, we have an etiquette salute from Karen in San Diego. Hi, Dan and Lizzie. Um, I'm a devoted listener to your podcast, and I came by it through TBTL, so thoroughly enjoy it. I wanted to give an etiquette salute to some teenagers at my neighborhood Starbucks that were particularly kind. I go to my neighborhood Starbucks frequently just to hang out enjoy my mocha and read a book and chat with my neighbors. And one of those weekends I was doing that, I was sitting in my armchair and I noticed that one of the managers was gingerly making her way across to the exit door and she had one crutch on one arm and the other she was carrying a package. What I was kind of thinking in my mind is no one else has probably noticed this, which is you know kind of self indulgent on my part, I guess. And I thought to myself mentally, I patted myself on the back thinking, well, I'm going to get up there and help her. And so before I could even rise from my chair, a teenage girl that was sitting with her friend and um, laughing and talking had gotten up from hers and opened the door for the manager that was limping along. And she didn't look around for any congratulations or anything like that. She just sat right back down and resumed her conversation. And I was just so impressed that she took the time and was that considerate. Had it been an adult, I would have thought it was kind. But I was just very impressed that this teenager did this for another person. And it gave me renewed hope in the younger generation, which is often portrayed as being self-centered and clueless. So cheers to this young woman for for practicing such excellent manners. What an excellent salute. Karen, thank you so much for sending that in. That is exactly the type of salute that Lizzie Post and I once sat around and hoped we would get to hear each week. I can't applaud enough your appreciation for the everyday courtesy that really does make this world a better place to live in. And I just want to 
be my mother's voice here on the show for just a second. She always says teenagers get such a bad rap. It's so easy to, to, in an offhand way, dismiss teenagers as the example of rudeness because they are working so hard to figure out their place in the world and they have so many challenges placed on them. And we oftentimes miss how often they're successful at becoming the types of people that we hope they're really going to grow into someday. So thank you for pointing that out and sharing that with all of us. Well, now, wasn't that better? Look at the effect of a little politeness. Thank you for listening. Thank you to everyone who sent us something. You can send us questions, comments, and salutes to our email, awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can leave us a message at 802-866-0860. You can also send us questions via Twitter. I'm at Lizzie A. Post. That's Lizzie with an I-E. And I'm at Daniel underscore Post. And on Facebook, we are Awesome Etiquette and the Emily Post Institute. Don't forget to help us out. Subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review. Our theme music was composed and performed by Bob Wagner and our show is produced by Hans Buto. Only ages have. Ooh, such a heavy thing.